<laughs> we're starting a new series today. We're, uh, if you've been with us for the past year or so, we've been going through the book of Luke, little by little. And uh, this new series, we're going to be going through chapter 9 and chapter 10. And uh, if you checked YouTube or if you got our bulletin last week, you'll know that we started off with a little video. Um, but this is the new year, and some of you guys are here because this is part of your New Year's resolution, right? You're like, hey, you know, for 2019, I'm going to try to go to church every week. Or for maybe some of you guys, 2019 is the year that I'm going to read through the entire Bible. Good luck. And around February is when it starts to get really tough, if you're reading in order from beginning to end, right? Um, but for those of you who are trying to read through the entire Bible, and if you do, I recommend you do it not just on your own, but you do it with somebody else that's reliable. But it, uh, if that's your resolution, this is what you're going dis- to discover, okay? You're going to discover that the Bible starts saying things that you didn't expect it to say. Because before you cracked open the Bible, and maybe I don't know how you got your first Bible, okay, maybe you went to church for a few years, and then somebody's like, you know, that guy doesn't have a Bible, so I'm going to give him a Bible, right? And out of, in most cases, in America at least, people have a preconceived notion of what the Bible says before you even open the Bible. And I think that's really interesting, because that means that you didn't read the Bible for yourself, somebody told you what the Bible says, right? And so when you start reading the scriptures, you assume that this is what the Bible is about, but then you get to certain parts of the Bible that has nothing to do with that thing that you thought the Bible is actually about. And so you just skip it because you're like, I I don't see how this is relevant to what the Bible is supposed to say. So like, for example, you think that the Bible is all about how to to get to heaven, right? But you read the first two thirds of the Bible, which is called the Old Testament. You read through it and you're like, there's nothing, like, there's nobody in this story so far that seems to be obsessed with getting to a destination after they die. Like, I thought the Bible was about how you get to heaven, right? There's a quote by a guy named Dallas Willard. He passed away a few years ago. He's a philosopher. He said that familiarity, or presumed familiarity, often leads to unfamiliarity. What that means is, because you already think you know everything about where you're about to look at, right, you miss out on what it's really trying to tell you. And so if you think you know what the Bible is saying, and you go through the scriptures, right, you, 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 you start to realize this has nothing to do with what I thought the Bible was supposed to be. Like, I thought it was about going to heaven, and it's not in there. What, what is this about? And then you start reading this new part called the New Testament. This is where the main character, Jesus, shows up. And you read through it, and you're like, oh, there it is. He's starting to talk a little bit about the afterlife. Well, this is interesting, right? But then when you finish reading that whole section, you realize, but he didn't seem that obsessed with our destination of where we end up after we die. As a matter of fact, when you read through the Jesus story, you start to discover that he seems to care more about what we do here in this life than what happens to us after we die. No, I'm not downplaying what happens to us after we die. That's very important. For a lot of us, that's the reason you said yes to Jesus in the first place, right? But after you say yes to Jesus, and you got the ticket to heaven, right? And until the day you die, and you go into heaven, Jesus seems to be really concerned about what you do in between those two specific, special, significant days, right? And as he seems to focus a lot on making a difference in the communities around us. He talks about how we need to forgive people. What does that have to do with going to heaven? He says things about how, how we need to be generous with what we have. What does that have to do with going to heaven, right? And he says that we need to take care of the poor and the widows and the people who are aliens. What does that have to do with going to heaven? Unless maybe that's not what the Bible is really trying to point us to. He does talk about what happens to us after we die, but maybe the life that we live after we say yes to Jesus is very, very important, okay? So, so when we eventually get to certain parts of the Jesus story, especially the part where the disciples ask him, how do we pray, Jesus? And he tells them this is how you have to pray. In that prayer, you start to see the heart of Jesus. In, the, in that prayer, 
this is a paraphrase of that prayer, he basically says this, our goal as Christians is this, to experience heaven together here on earth. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, yes, when we die, we want to go to heaven. That's, that's a great idea. Yeah, okay. But we don't have to wait. That by the way we live right now and the way we invite God into our lives, we can actually spread the goodness of God here on earth while we're still living here. And Jesus seems to spend a lot more time talking about that than making sure that we, you know, like, like there's, when he talks about descriptions of what it looks like after you die, he really doesn't spend that much time on it. But he seems to spend a lot more time on here, the here and now, right? In other words, what Jesus is really saying is this, that what we do here while we're still living matters to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is going to be spread through the way that we live our lives right here, right now. And that is the focus that Jesus spends most of his time on. Now, if that's the case, then the next question should be very, very obvious, which is this. Then, what role does God want us to play? If there's this thing called the kingdom of God, meaning if we could all experience this heaven on earth, if we, we are able to do, make this world around us better, the communities around us better, you know, the, our neighbors better, if we could make the world a better place, what role do I play in that story? Like, am I supposed to go and protest as something that I don't agree with? Is that how I'm going to bring change to this world? I don't know. Like, oh, is it, like, if there's a sick person, am I supposed to cook them a meal and take, is that, is that how I'm supposed to do it? I don't know. What role am I supposed to play in this thing called the kingdom of God? Like, and it's, so that's the question that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in Luke chapter 9. Now, Luke chapter 9 is a very interesting, pivotal chapter in the book of Luke. No, the book of Luke has 24 chapters. So we're not even halfway through in the study yet. But in chapter 9 is when Jesus starts to teach everybody in a different way. And this is, how, this is what I'm talking about. So Jesus is on this earth, and he's, his main ministry, when he's trying to bless the world, happens in the span of three years. Okay, And right now in this story, we're about a year to a year and a half into that story. So we're about, you know, Jesus realizes he has about a year and a half left. And he realizes at that point, once I leave this earth, you know, because he's going to be, He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise again. Four days later, he's going to leave. After that happens, he realizes that it's going to be up to these people, the disciples, the people that have been following him for the past year and a half, it's up to these people to carry on the Jesus movement. So he starts to shift the way he teaches into a way where it's more, not so, here are the three points on how you do, how you do certain things. It's, once I'm gone, you need to know how to do the things that I'm already doing right now. So I'm going to start putting you out there to do a little test. So in the beginning of chapter 9, he says, you know, just go out in pairs and go to the villages and, you know, just give it a try. And they go out and they come back and they give them a report. How did it go? How did it go, disciple? Disciple's like, Jesus, it was amazing. Like, you know, I just prayed for somebody and that person was healed. Can you believe it? And Jesus was like, good job, good job. Okay, um, what about you? Give me your report. It's like, well, I went to somebody's house and they didn't want me. So as you told me, I kind of shook the dust off my sandals and I left. I'm like, okay, that's good, you know. And, and then after they all come back and report to Jesus, Jesus gives them another lesson and he says, now go. And go and try that out, right? And so Jesus is trying to get their feet wet. And so what we pick up today is right after these people came back from one of their trips. Okay, so that's where we pick up from Luke chapter 9. We're starting from verse 10 today. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. So after all the disciples came back, and by now Jesus started calling them apostles, Okay, because apostles need sent ones, so Jesus is kind of giving them a new title. 
He says, now that you've done this, okay, let's have a little huddle, let's have a little retreat, let's take a break, let's go to a place where nobody knows we're going to be there. And they're like, disciples, where should we go? And a few of them are like, Bethsaida sounds good, because three of the 12 disciples came from the town of Bethsaida. So they're like, okay, let's go to your hometown. So they went to Bethsaida, but then the word got out. They're like, hey, I heard Jesus is going to Bethsaida, let's all go there. So this whole crowd of people... They started going around the shore, and they all congregated at Bethsaida, to which Jesus is like, we were supposed to have a quiet time. <laughs> what are all these people doing here? Jesus' response is a very loving one. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Okay, so this is business as usual for Jesus. Now, this is the part in the story where the problem arrives. Okay, so this is the part that I really want to focus on today. Late in the afternoon, the twelve, that's the apostles, came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. It's almost dinner time. And disciples look around. We don't have enough food here. What should we do? What should we do? So instead of asking Jesus, hey, we have a problem. There's a lot of people here, not much food. What should we do? They come up with their own solution and present the solution to Jesus in a way that says, Jesus, this is what you need to do. Tell the people to go away because they're about to get hungry. Okay? So remember, apostles telling Lord Jesus what to do. Okay? Now, if that sounds weird to you, this is basically how we pray, isn't it, though? We're like, hey, I see somebody hungry. Jesus, please feed them. Right? Or I see somebody in trouble. Jesus, please touch their hearts. Right? We're like, instead of us doing something about it, we just... We become prayer warriors and say, hey, Jesus, just, just fix that for us. Now, there's nothing wrong with prayer. I don't want you to start off 2019 thinking, oh, the pastor told me to not pray. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is a lot of times when we pray, we often forget the fact that we might be the answer to that very prayer we just prayed right now. Okay? So this is what happens. The apostles start off by saying, Jesus, go and fix this problem. <laughs> Jesus, I see that there's, there's all these hungry people. Now tell them to go away. He doesn't just describe the problem, he gives them the solution and tells them to act on it, right? Jesus' response is classic. Because first it starts off with, Jesus, you do this and we'll be fine. Jesus' response, you give them something to eat. So it's, it's this back and forth thing. Jesus, you need to do this. Jesus says, no, you actually not send them away, but you actually feed them. To which the disciples are like, what? What? Uh, Jesus, have you looked around you? This is their response. The disciples answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. Now, Luke gives us a little footnote here that says about 5,000 men were there. Now, the reason why he does this is to give us the idea that this quote that, that Luke just gave us from the apostles is actually a very sarcastic statement. And this is why, okay? Archaeologists looked at the site and realized that the population at the time was about 200. Right, And so when Jesus says, why don't you go and buy them something? Right, First, I don't know where the money's going to come from. But secondly, it's not like they had a Costco back then. It's not like, go to McDonald's and buy them a whole bunch of Big Macs. In a town of 200 where there was no retail stores, that's, that came a lot later in history, Right, it's impossible to feed 5,000 men. In the book of Matthew, which there's a parallel passage to this story, it mentions that 5,000 men implies that it was more than 5,000 because we're not counting the women and children. So there's more than 5,000 people here, okay? And Jesus is saying, you want to give me a solution? I'll give you a solution. The solution is go buy him something. To which the disciples are like, you can't do that because, you know, <laughs> like, what, if we go buy food for them? Like, that, 
way. Like, there's, this is a town of 200 people. How are you supposed to five, feed 5,000? There's not enough food here to feed 5,000 people because it's made for a capacity of 200 people. And if we go to the town next to that, which is also a rural town, they have probably less people there, right? So even with two of the neighboring towns together, they still can't feed 5,000 people. So this is the disciples' way of saying, well, of course, Jesus, I could, we could feed them if we had a store nearby, which isn't going to be invented for another few hundred years, right? So they're being sarcastic to Jesus. So you have to imagine the back and forth that's happening here. Jesus, you do this. No, you do this. No, you do this. And there's it going back and forth, back and forth. That's the scene that Luke is trying to set up for us, okay? Now, the reason why the, the apostles are doing this to God, okay, to Jesus, okay, is because they have the same theology that you and I have subscribed to, which is this, okay? We believe that God could do all things, right? But what Jesus really wants to make clear here is this, okay? Just because God can do all things does not mean that he will do all things. Just because God could do all things doesn't mean that he will do all things. And, and you're like, wait, is, is, is that, are you sure, Kotz? Because I, I've been taught since I was a kid that, that we're supposed to rely on God and then let him do everything, and, you know, right? And, and the answer is yes and no. And because what Jesus is saying here is very consistent with the entire Old Testament. And I'll give you an example of that. So in the very beginning of the Bible, it's a book called Genesis. This is where the creation story takes place. Okay? And in this creation story, it starts off with God saying, let there be light. And he just speaks it and it happens. He's speaking things into being. And around day three, he starts to say different things that, that should catch our attention. So here's an example. This is Genesis 1, verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees of the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it's so. So Jesus, Jesus, God is saying, I'm going to create plants. Plants! And just appear. But he doesn't just create plants. He creates plants with seeds in them. Why? Next verse. The land produced vegetation, because he said, you know, he said it, right? Plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them according to their kinds. He created plants so plants could create more plants. But I thought God was the one that's creating plants. Yes, but he also wants to take some of the responsibility he has and pass it on to the plants so they're creating together. There's a partnership that's happening here. And when God saw that, he saw, he saw that it was good. A few days later, this happens. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars. This is the part of the story where it creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Okay? Now remember, at the very beginning of the story, God spoke the light into being, and he was the one that caused the light to shine and the light to subside so there's day and night. And all of a sudden, on day four of creation, God creates these two big balls of light, and he gives that responsibility to the sun and the moon. Next verse. God sent, uh, set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern, which was God's job originally, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. When God takes his responsibility, his job, right, and he starts to delegate it to other things in his creation, he sees it as good. And then comes human beings. Let's see how that story goes. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
like, God, I thought that was your job to rule over the animals and the plants and the fish. I thought that was your job. And God's like, yes, it is my job. But I don't want to do it alone. I'm going to give part of my responsibilities to humankind so they could partner with me in ruling over the earth. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is a very old teaching that goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible, and that is this, that God is not interested in being a solo act. God could do all these things on his own. I mean, think about the Moses story. Slaves in Egypt, all God had to do was snap his fingers, and then all they would have been, well, if you do that, then the Thanos thing happens. But he could have just spoken it, right? And they would have been out of Egypt, right? But instead, he's like, no, I'm going to use a flawed guy like, Mom, like Moses to pull these people out. Yeah, he's going to mess up a few times, but I would rather do it in partnership with people than do it by myself. So this is a very, very important concept that Jesus is backing up in the New Testament, right? Because of this, God wants to partner with you to accomplish his goal. He's not interested in doing everything alone. He could display his power for the whole world to see, right? But he instead chooses to partner with you. Wow. So we go back to Jesus' story. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 14. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Jesus, they're going to get hungry. Just have them sit down. There's 5,000 of them. Just make 100 groups of 50. Okay. So the disciples did so. And everybody sat down. Good. Everybody listened to what the disciples said. Next verse. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. So you can just imagine. There's a whole bunch of small groups right there. Disciples back out to them, and he's looking at Jesus. He's like, Jesus, this is all the food we have. What are we supposed to do with this? And Jesus just takes and says, mm, thank you for this food. Okay, here, pass it out. <laughs> and like, Serious? They're like, they're gonna, they're gonna. This is this is not gonna end well. And they turn around and they start to distribute the food. And then this happens. They all ate, not just a few people in the front of the crowd. All of them ate, and they were all satisfied. Which is interesting because that was not the goal in the first place. The goal was just to give them a little bit of food. You know, I mean, like give them a cracker or something, right? But they all ate to the point they were satisfied, right? And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. They ended up with more food than they actually started with. How did this happen? What started off as, let's just get them some food so that they can survive through the night, right? Turned into satisfaction. How did this happen? How did this happen? Well, let's see what, well, the apostles must be like, man, this is amazing. I just saw something amazing happen. You know, good job, us. Pat myself on the shoulder. <laughs> but let's, let's kind of do a recap of, what the apostles actually accomplished. So here's a list of things that the apostles actually did. Number one, they only did three things. Number one, they pointed out a need. Jesus, they're hungry. Number two, they told the people to sit down, right? Sit down. And they did, right? And number three, here's the food. You pass out the food. That's all they did. What did Jesus do? Jesus multiplied food. Now, do you realize the miracle happened with Jesus, but not with the apostles? The apostles did ordinary acts things that you and I could do. Jesus did something that what only Jesus can do. In other words, the concept and the idea and the principle that we need to pick up from this story right here, okay, is something that we discover a lot, you know, happens more and more frequently as, as history goes on. This is a concept and the principle that we all need to understand, which is this. 
the apostles did what they knew how to do. They knew how to tell people to sit down. They knew how to point out problems. And they knew how to pass out food. They did what they knew how to do. And they also trusted God to do only what he can do. And this is a very, very important principle to me. Because this is how my life was changed. You see, when I first started going to school, started going to church, I was invited by a friend to go to church, and I was a senior in high school, a junior in high school. And when I, you know, and I'm sure it was really nerve-wracking for my friend to invite me to church, but what he did was something that he knew how to do. He's like, I invited people to my house before, I invited people to a movie before, I'm just going to invite somebody to church, you know, right? Invited me to church. And I remember sitting down, and to him, it was just an act of invitation, but God took that invitation and made it into something bigger for me. I remember sitting down in service for the first time, and I had no idea what was going on. And maybe some of you, if this is your first time, you have no idea what's going on right now. But I remember sitting down, I'm looking around, and everybody stands up all of a sudden. So I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to stand up. You know? And, oh, they're singing from a book. Where'd you get the book? Oh, it's under there. Okay. You know, it's like, okay, here we are. And I had no, I was so nervous. I felt out of place, right? And after we sat down, we had a time of just greeting. And I remember the lady behind me tapped my shoulder. And he said, hey, you're new here, aren't you? And I said, yeah, yeah. What's your name? It's like, oh, and it's hot, you know. And, and I, I was almost certain that she was going to forget my name by the end of service. But I remember I came back the next week. She tapped me on the shoulder again and said, I remember your name. Your name is Kotz. And I'm like, yeah. How did she, yeah thank, thank you so much for remembering my name. She's like, well, your name sounds like Katsudon, so I thought it would be easy to remember. And I'm like, okay. But she did an ordinary thing. She memorized one name. But God took that one act of memorizing my name and made it into something that changed my heart. An ordinary act that, that, that you might be good at doing is just an ordinary act by itself. But when God comes into it, God does something only he can do. He could change it into something bigger, something that's extraordinary. I remember uh, um, a few years into going to church, I remember I was starting to kind of get complacent. I wasn't really happy being at church anymore. And it was around that time, and I, I didn't share this with anybody at the time, so I don't know how this person knew. Maybe he didn't know. He just kind of called me up one day and said, Hey, Kotz, I would love for you to, to have lunch with me once a month. I said, Okay. He's like, I'll pay. I'm like, Okay, yeah, sure. You know, I was a college student at the time. I would love to, for you to pay for my lunch. And he worked at a local seminary, and he was like, I would just love to just meet with you once a month. And I would just sit down with him, and we'd just pray, and we would talk, and we would throw ideas at each other, you know, and we just did that once a month. There's nothing extraordinary in what he did. He just invited me to lunch. But God took that invitation and made it into something bigger. He did what he knew how to do, and he trusted God to do what only he can do. It's like this perfect marriage between human and God. But you see, what's interesting about this is that it's not just my story. It turns out this is a story of church history. The church is a collection of ordinary actions that were made extraordinary through God. This is very important. If you're taking notes, write that down. This is really good. This is so, such good preaching. Okay. <laughs> okay. If you read through the book of Acts, okay, you'll discover there's a character named Peter. He's one of the main characters of the book of Acts. And at this time, Christianity was originally a Jewish thing. Christianity was a sect of of Judaism, okay? And the reason it was contained inside of Judaism is because the apostles felt awkward going out of their own comfort zone into 
Gentiles, people who are not Jews, because they, for a long time, for thousands of years, they believed that people who were outside of the Jewish circle were unclean. Okay, so here's Peter, and God tells him, I want you to go into a guy named Cornelius. I want you to go into his house. And he gets nervous, like, ah, should I do that? I don't know. This is, uh, it's like, like cooties. I, I don't know if I want to, uh, should I go in there? Now, what's interesting in this story is he goes into Cornelius' house. He sees this amazing work of God. He goes back home and tells his friends, like, guys, God is also working in the Gentile community, right? Now, what's interesting about this story is this. If you look at the list of things that Peter actually did, it's a very simple list. Peter walked into a house. I'm sure we all know how to do, walk into somebody's house, okay? And then he watched what happened, and then he stepped out of the house, and he told his friends about it. That's it. Peter did an ordinary action that eventually turned into something extraordinary because it was in God's hand. And that's, 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 Peter's, that's Peter's story, right? There's another story in the book of Acts. Uh, uh, there's a couple, a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And they're like, we don't know what we could do for God, but you know what? We have an extra bedroom. And so there's a guy named Paulus who's walking around. He's like a missionary. And he's like, hey, um, Paulus, if you want a place to stay, you can stay at our extra bedroom. I'm like, okay. And he goes in there, and then he spends the night, and they're having a meal together, and they're having conversations. And Apollos apparently doesn't know everything about Jesus. And, and Aquila and Priscilla, they knew something more than Apollos knew about Jesus, so they, he starts to share something about it. And it changes Apollos' method of ministering to the world. And it eventually adds to this big picture of what the kingdom of God eventually becomes. All because they said, hey, we have an extra bedroom. You guys want to stay? An ordinary act became extraordinary because God's hand was in it. Church history is filled with examples like this. If you're the kind of person that's like, I, I still don't get it, you know, like, can you explain to me in a simpler way? Um, maybe a math problem would help. This, this, this is what it looks like. My work plus God's hand equals God's kingdom. You heard me say this before, but in the early church, around the first century, most Christians were actually women. Why were they women? It's because in the Roman Empire, which was the world power at the time, when they had kids, the people in the Roman Empire, when they had kids, if it was a boy, it was worth keeping. If it was a girl, they said, we don't want to waste your time raising one because they don't have much value. And so babies, after a few days they were born, they were tossed out into the streets. And there where Christians were walking, they looked around and said, hey, I know how to raise a kid. I already raised four of them. You know, maybe I should just pick up this one and raise them, right? Because that was their ordinary act. But these people eventually raised, these women, turned to women, these babies who turned to women, and they were taught the love of God, and eventually they got married, and these women, who back then were usually in charge of raising kids, raised their children to love God, and to love the world, and to love their neighbors, to love their enemies, and eventually that changed the world. Church history is just a collection of stories of ordinary people doing ordinary acts with God's hand in it, which made it extraordinary. Maybe for you, you're like, I don't know what I could contribute to the, to the kingdom of God. I don't know. What can I do? Well, let me, let me ask you this. If you're able to wake up on a Sunday morning, and if you're able to extend your hand and say good morning, right, you could be part of the, you could be part of the host team. You could be greeting people. <laughs> because let me tell you, when somebody greets you when you come to church for the first time, it could mean a lot. To them, it's just not a hi, how do you do? To them, it's, I feel like I'm home now. For some of you who are like, I'm not, I don't know the Bible that well, but I love kids. I, I, I know how to get along with kids. Well, maybe for you, the ordinary act that you're willing to put out there is to 
to say, hey, I would love to help out with kids. Or maybe for you, I'm like, I'm not good at any of this stuff, but I know how to remember people's names. I know how to turn around and say, hi, how do you do? Are you new here? I, I could do that because that ordinary act could translate to something extraordinary if God's hand's in it. I don't know how to do anything, but I love food. And I know how to serve food. I know how to make food. If that's you, God could use that. Or maybe it's not just inside the church. Maybe it's at work, in cubicle land. And you're like, you know, I always overpack my lunch. Like, I always have too much. I always throw away half the food I bring to work. Um, hey, you know, would you like to share my lunch? Like, that, maybe that could turn into something big. I don't know. But whatever it is that you're good at, or maybe you're like, you know, um, I'm not good at any of this stuff, but all I know is that I have a big living room that could fit about 10 people. So you know what? I'm just going to host my, the next life group at my house. And who knows? In that space, something extraordinary could happen just because we're able to say, you know what? I, I don't know what I could do, but here it is. And you give it to God, and God does something amazing. The kingdom of God is built on people like you, people like me who said, I don't know what I could bring to the table, but here's something I, I could do, I could give, I could, you know. <laughs> Maybe it's just carrying somebody's bags. Hey, that bag looks heavy. Can I help you carry it? And that could translate into something extraordinary. You never know. And that's the beauty of it. There's excitement in the world because you're like, I, I don't know how God's going to use me, but if when he uses me, it always blows my mind. And this is why a lot of times people say, hey, good job, and you say, oh, it wasn't me, it was totally God. Do you understand why people say that? It's because they're because from our perspective, we're basically saying, I did what I knew how to do, and I had no idea that the outcome was going to turn into something extraordinary, but I just said what I knew how to do. It's like one of those people who saves the day, and they interview him, and they're like, hey, I was just doing my job. <laughs> like, yeah, but you're a hero. It's like, yeah, but I was just doing my job. But for some reason, when God's hand was in it, it turned into something bigger. So we're in the first Sunday of the year. And what I really want us to do is this. Okay? I, want to ask, I want us to start asking this one question, asking ourselves these questions, or maybe asking each other this one question, which is this. What can I do that God can use? What can I do that God can use? What can I do that God can use? What slide was built on this question? Years ago, when people said, let's plant a church, they weren't thinking... And we're going to reach the world. <laughs> I don't know if anybody, I wasn't part of the original team that planned this church, but I'm pretty sure people think, weren't thinking, let's reach the world. But because of the efforts of everybody here, we are reaching the world right now. We contribute to mission organizations that reaches the world. People listen to this, the sermons that we post online around the world. People feel the work that you put into this church around the world. But here's the bigger idea. You and I, if you're here today, you and I are beneficiaries of people who ask this question. If you call yourself a Christian today, it's because somewhere in the past, somebody did an ordinary act that God made extraordinary. Somebody invited you to church one day. That was an ordinary act, but you're still here today, and that means that, some, that, that God took that ordinary action and made it into something big. If you're the kind of person that says, oh, no, I came to church on my own. Nobody invited me. I, I, I found this church on my own, and, and I became a Christian on my own. I, I, I read the Bible on my own, and then, you know, I, I did all this. You know, it was, okay, that's great, okay? But somebody wrote the Bible. Somebody heard from God and said, I need to write this down. Eventually became canonized and became part of the Bible. Somebody's ordinary actions eventually led to your conversion. 
this is a huge idea. Everybody here is, an, a, beneficiary, is, is a huge beneficiary of somebody's ordinary action that got me big. Because they all ask this question, what can I do that God can use? What can I do that God can use? 